Hi, everybody. David Knorr back with you for another episode of the Service Council's In-Service podcast series. I'm delighted you're here. We're live on Facebook and LinkedIn and YouTube and Twitter. And we're joined by John Barr from Kone. Hello, John. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. It is great to have you. Uh, today, we're going to talk about really this outside-in transformation of the service function. Uh, John's in a really unique position within the Kone organization, and we're going to talk a lot about not just his background and the company, but some of the really interesting things they're doing to transform the organization. I think the global pandemic uh, motivated a lot of people to really think much more hybrid and virtual and kind of how they're working with field service, customer service, customer experience. And, uh, and we want to get some of those real nuggets from John and the organization that we hope you can implement in your respective organization. So, John, why don't we start with your uh, personal professional background? If you could start, just tell us where you've been, what you've done over the years and how you've arrived here. Sure. Thanks, David. Yeah, my name's uh, John Barr, as you mentioned. I work with Kone. I've been here just almost 25 years. Uh, I've probably last year I stopped feeling like the new guy. You know, but the whole time it's been uh, a great learning journey. Uh, I started off in consulting, uh, then came to Kone, and I've been sort of an internal consultant ever since, uh, working on implementing major ERP systems, service management systems, working on IT infrastructure, IT applications, uh, supporting our service transformation and implementation of digital services. Uh, our IoT implementation, pretty much get involved with anything that has something to do with uh, technology. Uh, I, I am powered by uh, seeing this, the delight on the faces of the business teams when they can utilize technology to improve how they serve customers, uh, how they improve safety in the operation. Those things really motivate me. Um, and personally, I'm married. I have four kids. Uh, the last two left the house last fall. So I'm uh, also transforming at home and finding a, a, a new gear with uh, less responsibilities and a little bit more freedom. So Love that. it's, my uh, wife, it's a my, great journey. My wife and I are become, about to become empty nesters. And, and John, I just want to ask one question. Do they ever get off the books? Do they uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I will say it. Uh, I feel like it transforms your life as much as when they arrived. Sure. But they're they're always on your books, either uh, monetarily or uh, spiritually, or uh, they're always on your mind. You're thinking about them. You're always a parent, I think, no matter at any time. But it, you certainly get a lot more freedom when they're uh, when they're not around the house. And it's strange. Everything stays picked up and organized you know I, so it's, i wouldn't it's know what weird. that's like give, give yeah. me about a month I, it'll make <laughs> you feel really weird yeah, i love I, it I, I promise tell us about the it group how many folks uh is it global is it regional uh how do you interact with the different business unit or, or the business folks tell us a little about that infrastructure sure okay uh well coney makes elevators and escalators and services them for the life of the equipment and uh, we're a very global company uh it grew through acquisition uh, so we used to be probably a network of companies that had, you know, common products, but maybe not always common processes and tools. Uh, we've been on a journey for a couple of decades to uh, remove and, and eliminate uh, duplication in systems and find common processes and practices. We're probably leading the way in IT. We're very 
uh, global in that. And most of our uh, resources sit uh, either at our headquarters in Finland uh, or in our operations center in India. And we leverage them around the world for um, their expertise, uh, for service management, for application development, uh, all of those kind of things. So we really, we spend a lot of time uh, balancing and prioritizing our requirements and making sure we see what's common around the world and focusing our investments there and then empowering our business teams to fill in the gaps uh, in the other areas where maybe it's not a global problem, but more area focused, you know, payroll, things like that. So it's a it's a real challenge. I work through networks of people uh, and I do a lot of uh, selling and involving versus telling uh, in this role. And uh, it's really a, a great role where I'm sitting in between deep technical expertise and our business leaders and helping to translate uh, and connect people and to help people understand context. You know, so the technical people typically don't understand what it takes to run a world class business and service. And uh, many times the service teams don't understand the complexities involved in uh, delivering uh, the services that are coming from IT. So a lot of explaining and connecting and things like that, networking. So um, the business has, and I'm, I'm, I'm making some assumptions, but I'd love your help in clarifying this. The yeah. business has a business need, right? We need these field technicians to be able to do something. And they come to you as that subject matter expert in digitally, technically, whether it's hardware, software, processes, help us make that vision or that need kind of come to fruition. Is that, and then you go work with the technical resources of based on your needs, here's some options we've come up with, here's some hardware software combination we can roll out. Talk a little about that process. Is that, is that a fair assumption in terms of that flow? It is. You know, I think usually what's interesting is the business comes with uh, we'd like to implement this technology. Okay. And then I say, that's great. I, I'm all for it. I love technology. But but time out. Uh, what is the business objective we're trying to accomplish? You know, and what is the expected outcome? How does we know how do we know what success looks like? And then how do we make sure that what we're going to do uh, gets us to that success and gets us the outcome we need? And many times we might find that uh, you know, when we, we peel the onion and dig into the challenge, uh, there may be existing solutions that are very close to solving that problem and just need a small enhancement. Or we might even have some tool set that's already out there uh, in our uh, digital suite of tools. We're obviously an Office 365 um, customer. We use Microsoft Teams. Uh, there's many things you can uh, sort of trial and, and uh, you know, sort of agilely build uh, in that environment to try to prove out the concept. Mm -hmm. You know, does, does the expected outcome happen when you uh, empower those uh, roles with that information? And uh, that many times we can try out the, the concept in, in a pilot and before we're even making any large investments. So we're really spending a lot of time trying to make sure we have the right business outcomes and that we understand how we're going to get there. And, you know, the, the key is to try things because usually the first thing you try fails and you try something else, you know, and, and we're trying to build a culture of, you know, it's interesting. We're, we're very much a very strong safety culture and in safety, you don't try things, you know, and you don't want to fail ever. 
you know, so it, it, some of the, some of the things I asked the business to do to take risk, to try things and, and accept failure as a learning, you know, opportunity. Those are, you know, maybe a little bit counter to some of our safety cultures, but I like to say those failures are like near misses. We didn't invest a lot, you know, so we didn't actually have an injury. We just learned, you know, like you would from a, from a near miss. And then the key is to, to, to react to that and change and pivot. So you don't get mesmerized by sexy, jazzy, cool technology. You, I love the fact that you start with the business objectives and the outcomes and what are we trying to do? How do you uh, battle or how do you, and I, and I love your comment, selling and involving, not telling. I think that's really clever. Mm. How do you combat the perception that the IT group is really a business inhibitor, not a business enabler? Because we had done our due diligence. We looked at four or five vendors. We kind of figured out that this company and this technology does what we want to do. We go to IT and, and again, not present company, but IT will take six months and their sweet time. And by the time that they go through their analysis, they come back and say, I can do this in Microsoft and you've negated everything we've done. And by the way, I've lost six months. So how do you combat that the, the immediacy need of the business to solve a problem and your rightfully so due diligence process to make sure it fits within the architecture, within the environment? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think it's the question of our times as well, that uh, it used to be you had to go through IT for everything, you know, to, to get something done in technology because it just required programming, it required the expertise. And uh, I think the reality is now that uh, digital transformations are happening too fast in our organizations to to have one group be responsible for delivering all of them. So it's imperative for me to, you know, I will be the bottleneck. If everything has to go through IT, I guarantee we will be the bottleneck. You know, there's just too many solutions that need to be developed. And I think in a way the, the COVID experience has uh, sort of codified that, that if we had to wait for IT systems to be built to, uh, validate vaccination cards and to take daily health attestations of our technicians and to, you know, we, we, you just couldn't respond quick enough. You had to build it in the business. You had to build it securely. So I'm, I'm welcoming in many of my business colleagues to become IT sort of, you know, uh, professionals, maybe not in the professional sense, but, you know, it, it used to also be that you couldn't, um, add up a bunch of numbers and consolidate a budget without IT. And then we had Excel and then, you know, then we built budget systems and, you know, but Excel was really an empower and enabler for our business to be able to do things that always required a mainframe. And that same thing is happening now with mobile applications, uh, process flows, you know, they, they need to be built uh, in the business uh, as much as in IT. So, very much for me, it's about trying to understand the criticality, the the risk, uh, and the cybersecurity requirements of the outcomes they're looking for, and then directing them to the uh, best way to achieve the outcomes as quick as possible, which may be, you know, doing a full-blown IT project, maybe buying a software package for payroll, but it may also mean uh, developing a process in um you know, in a no-code, low-code tool uh, in the business. So they can not only implement it, but the next time they have a, an idea to try something, 
you know, they can try that idea. They don't have to put in a ticket to IT. They just, you know, rev and keep going and try new things and, and adjust. But it's got to be the right uh, balance of risk and criticality. We, we don't want to dispatch our technicians on, you know, sort of business built low code tools or pay people, you know, but there are many, many areas where we need to improve our operations using digital technology, but it doesn't have to be uh, an IT built system. You, you got to love uh, the, the, the fan club you have going on in service council. That is a testing that John is not a business inhibitor. I'm joking aside. Uh, I know they're, they're, uh, they're grateful to have you on the advisory board and the insights you add from a technical mm -hmm. standpoint is invaluable. So thank you for that. Um, one trend we've noticed is increasingly traditional IT organizations are decentralizing and putting mm -hmm. that technical resource within embedding them within business units. So the IT, for lack of a better word, empire gets kind of it's smaller, but they really get, you know, fanned out within the organization. Are you guys seeing some of that? Are you doing some of that where that deep technical expertise is now residing within marketing or sales or manufacturing, or in this case, field service, customer service? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think we're not moving in that direction technically. Um, you know, we're not putting database administrators or cloud architects or, you know, into our business teams. But what we are doing is we're taking those key user networks of uh, contacts we had of people who, you know, grew up through the business, know the business inside out, but are also really interested in technology. Uh, my goal is to raise them up, to upskill them and to allow them to, you know, to do things that maybe used to be in IT, you know, in terms of uh, gathering requirements, maybe even building solutions, but not through Java code or C++, but through low-code, no-code tools, um, automation technologies, things like that. So in, in a way, for me, that's pushing IT out into the business, but it's not, um, you know, when I, when I think of, you know, database administration or cloud architecture, we, we want to have those people be you know, shared across many areas and go really deep in the technology. And they're not going to understand the business context that well. And uh, we can't afford a bunch of them. So we really have to share them. So in many cases, our IT deep technical expertise is moving into competence centers. But we are pushing the role of IT deeper into the business, empowering and upskilling those key users into roles, into things that, you know, probably in the past would have had to have been uh, built by IT. I mean, imagine if you said, hey, business, go ahead and go build your uh, mobile application on a phone. You know, they, they would have had to hire a contractor. They would have got programmers in, you know, and it's like, no, no, no. You just need to uh, use this, uh, you know, no, low code, no code technology. And uh, you draw the screen what you want on a piece of paper, and then you scan it in with a camera, and the low-code technology builds the app for you. Love it, love it. You know, so just you know. Yeah, love it. So let's switch gears uh, to okay. the last couple of years of the global pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, John, can you comment on two, three service-centric technology trends that you believe? will have a lasting impact on access to service, access to, you know, for service to clients. What are some of the things that are going to really stay with us 
that you believe the pandemic really maybe potentially accelerated or solidified that there's no going back to doing it the way we were doing it? Hmm. That's a good one. Uh, I, I do think that, um, you know, the service is a very people focused business. Um, you know, we we send our people uh, to customer sites to deliver that service, to, to maintain the equipment, to, you know, bring it back into service, to free, you know, maybe entrap passengers, hopefully not very often. Um, you know, that's not changing, but we had to get very close to our customers. Uh, we had to understand uh, how they felt about the pandemic, how the pandemic affected their operation and about the behaviors and qualifications of our technicians to be aligned with customer, you know, I want to say expectations, but it's really customer needs. You know, we were taking care of many facilities that were retirement communities, that were hospitals, um, you know, factories that, you know, if they had outbreaks, um, that, that it could dramatically impact uh, their financial viability, their operation. So they wanted to know lots of what we would consider very personal information about our employees. You know, were they vaccinated? Uh, what was their temperature that day? You know, were they close contacts of any other individuals? So it, I think it really helped us, you know, fine tune uh, those customer requirements and making sure that we were operating in alignment with them uh, when we're dispatching, uh, when, you know, when we're reacting to, to call outs and, and things of that nature. I, I also think that we saw a dramatic increase in productivity, you know, especially for those individuals who were, you know, not in the office anymore and were, uh, you know, at their home office. Uh, salespeople were, you know, our, our touch points with customers went up dramatically uh, because they, you know, honestly just probably weren't driving as much. So I, I would I would love to see that the amount of driving that we do uh, would diminish. And that doesn't mean that we don't go see our customers. We go see them when it's important and we do things that we can only do face to face when we're there. And the rest of the time we're having more frequent interactions with them uh, virtually and being able to do that because we're you know spending less time driving because there's very little no one pays us uh to drive we're not a parcel delivery company you know so it's uh for me driving is kind of waste and from a safety perspective you know driving is probably one of the most dangerous things our teams do all day the ones who aren't turning wrenches and on a construction site you know driving is probably the most dangerous thing they do uh, for Kone. So minimizing that transport could go a long way. Um, great. Yeah. Uh, for our audience, I uh, would encourage you to jump in with your questions, comments. Uh, John Barr is our guest from Kone and a wealth of experience on really translating the, the business value of technology for field service, customer service, customer experience. So Service Council is sharing 41% of service leaders cite the inability to integrate technology into process workflows as the greatest inhibitor to new technology adoption. Talk a little about that. Talk about how are you able to not just help them evaluate it, which we touched on earlier, but really integrate it and see the business outcomes when that technology is integrated with some sort of a workflow process. Yeah, th this is the uh, a big challenge for, for us and for everybody. I, I think the days of buying one solution that solves 80% of your business needs uh, 
you know, those no longer exist. Uh, we're, we're patching together a quilt of technology into a blanket. And, uh, you know, many times we're getting the individual pieces and they're not all square and you've got to somehow weave them together. And this is where uh, technologies like single sign-on are incredibly important. So whenever we're implementing something, it has to be single sign-on compliant. So we know that um, the identity of our individuals is secure. And then when individuals uh, retire or leave the organization, that their access is removed as well. So a key part is identity, but then also you have to have, um, and I don't wanna get too technical, but if, but if, if you work through APIs, you know, through um, those are automatically built in integrations into different technologies. And when you can connect the APIs together, you can flow data between different uh, solutions uh, in your environment. So we're, we're rapidly and heavily investing in API technology, both internally inside of Kone, but also with our partners and also with our customers. So we have a lot of important information that we think customers could use to improve their operations. And we wanna expose that information in a secure way so that they can use that information to make their operation better. You know, well, so I, I think a well, great example is you have a, you know, you have a, a, a train uh, station, you know, or a, a citywide transit company, and they're responsible for all the train stations they need to let the patrons know when are the elevators working, when are they taken out of service, because it's mostly going to impact the people who don't have a choice but have to ride the elevator because of their mobility. And that information really provides a lot of value to that transportation entity uh, and to the, to the riding public for them. And we can expose that through APIs to them. So, so is there um a process you think of? Are there some best practices you implement in, uh, I don't know if you can ever guarantee adoption, but one of the most painful things for any organization is to invest in the technology and the process and let's get it implemented. And then for whatever reason, it's not an age thing, but it's, you know, we're all creatures of habit, right? I've been doing it the same way for so long. You want me to do it a different way. What have you found to be really useful in helping field service, customer service, customer experience professionals embrace, adopt, and really start utilizing a new technology, a new approach to doing what they've been doing. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, you know, I always tell people that technology is the easiest part. You know, it's, it's the humans that bring all the challenge, you know, in it. And we're all not, uh, we're all snowflakes in some ways, you know, so we have different uh, you know, change target issues and resistance. But for me, I, I like to try to keep it as simple as possible. And if you're not dissatisfied with the current state, then you're not going to change. And if the, if the desire and the draw of the future state isn't worth going through the pain of the change, you're not going to change. So you've got you've to make sure people aren't happy with where they're at and that they understand what's on the other side of the work and that they're willing to put in the work to change. And then I think you find people who are uh, key influencers. I mean, this is change management kind of maybe 201, but you find those key influencers in the organization who, you know, who people look to, you know, if that person is uh, adopting it, then it's, it's probably really good, you know, and you make sure that they're 
that they see the value and have the dissatisfaction and you turn them and that's kind of like uh, herding the cattle. You know, you find the lead the lead cow and you, where that one goes, the many of the others go. So it's um, but it is it's it's the big challenge is making people, you know, take the risk Absolutely. and make the investment. But I, I think it starts maybe with um, a good dose of empathy. You know, you, you have to put yourself in the shoes of the people you're asking to change and the work that they're doing every day and that this is on top of the expectations. You know, nobody gets a nobody gets a budget dip uh, to adopt a new change. You know, they, in fact, they know on the other end is probably a budget push, you know, because we're expected to perform better with the technology investment. So, it, you know, if, if you put it, if you kind of look through their eyes, it's um there's a, there's many good reasons and understanding for why they might be resisting. And uh, it's all about communication and collaboration and uh, finding those key influencers. Uh, we've got a great question from uh, Johan Diaz. Thank you for jumping in. What about the platform economy? Uh, however, that supports the move towards achieving significant portion of, of requirements in one platform. What's your what's your take on the platform economy? Yeah, so I, I think that I think there's the opportunity uh, to be able to uh, buy into platforms that have other plugins by other providers. I, I still think that uh, when I look at the landscape of the requirements we have from payroll, taxation, um, you know, different government entity requirements uh, all around the world, uh, it, it's still you know this this ability to integrate rapidly, flexibly. Um, you know, using a, a service-based architecture is uh, still the way we're going to be plugging things together. But I, I, I think I'm always a, not an absolutionist. I believe in um, it's probably both and. And, um, you know, I don't think you can go one way to the spectrum, you know, fully, you know, everything's different and integrated. And then the other end is all platform-based. It's, it's a little of both. And the magic is figuring out where you can um, make a platform work for most of your requirements and where you'll have to build the integrations. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, so it's always a little bit of both and. You brought up transformation a couple of times in your comments, thinking about the field service, customer service, customer experience space. What does that digital transformation mean to you? What does that look like? Yeah, so if I think of it from a customer perspective, um, I think our customers are, you know, they work in incredibly competitive environments. They compete with other facilities uh, of their type, other people in their industry, and they're very laser focused on the service that they provide to the people who inhabit their buildings or visit their buildings. And there's a, I think a growing appreciation that, um, you know, the technology and, um, experiences that they want to empower in their facility are increasingly going to be driven by digital technology. And so we're seeing so much more software um, go into buildings that are built today. You know, it's not just vertical transportation or HVAC or, you know, it's, it's, it's guest management, it's people flow routing, it's, it's adapting to the, you know, to the, restaurant that's on the top floor and their, you know, menu of the week or, or different events that are happening in the building. It's really changing the dynamics of the experience through software. Mm -hmm. And we want to be a part of that, that journey with our customers. So we're, 
you know, building an ecosystem of partners that we want to work with to bring to our uh, facility customers and to help them create unique and value added experiences for their tenants and their visitors. And, you know, if we can do that and if that can mean they get better retention on their tenants or improve pricing, uh, that, that helps them improve their business. And that's really, you know, the key for us is helping improve our customers' business and addressing their pain points. And we think we can do more than just through the physical product, you know, that we provide. We can also help create these digital experiences. Got a great question. Uh, Charlie Warren, good to see you, sir. Um, how do you think about the future of the install base, managing the data around it, monetizing it in a customer success and sales arena? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that's one of the maybe where I feel the most responsibility for our customers is uh, helping them take care of their equipment, uh, helping it um, age within its design specifications, helping to make sure that it performs uh, as good as new, you know, for as long as possible. But I think there's also along the way, um, I don't want to say difficult conversations, but needed conversations that the, you know, assets are assets that they, they, they not only depreciate maybe, but they also kind of wear down, you know, and, and they need investment, you know? And uh, so we have a, a pretty well-developed program where we sit with our service customers on a regular basis. And we look out, not, you know, six months, we look out five years, mm -hmm. 10 years, and we're talking to them about, you know, what, how's their building changing? You know, are you bringing in a WeWork on floor six? And what's that going to do to your traffic flow? And what are your SLAs and KPIs for WeWork? And, you know, is your equipment going to be able to solve that? Mm -hmm. You know, and does it need some investment to be able to meet that new expectation? You know, because we, we built buildings for a long time with an idea that individuals take up so much square foot and, you know, if we build it that way, we only need so many you know, elevators and, and uh, you know, our density uh, in buildings has grown. And of course, the, the elevators were built, you know, when the building was built and they don't grow and change on their own. They have to be, we have to be intentional with software updates and feature capability updates, things like that. So we're, we're constantly looking at our uh, customer equipment and how we can partner with them to ensure that it not only continues to meet their needs, but continues to meet their emerging and changing needs as well. Love, love that. That customer centricity is, is very much uh, relevant to our conversation. So if that digital transformation, what I'm hearing from you is, is really digitally enabling the evolution of the customer's business or business model. Mm -hmm. Talk about today's topic more of how is Kone thinking about that from an outside end perspective? What are you, how are you prioritizing? What are you focused on to really help, again, field service, customer service? John, as we talked about, remain relevant in the hearts and minds of those customers. And the example you and I talked about is if I can get on my smartphone when my pizza dough is going in the oven and when it's going to get delivered, what do you mean your technician will be here between nine and five, right? So yeah. how are you remaining relevant and how are you Im implementing this outside in mindset to help Kone field service, customer service remain relevant? Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a good call out. I, I, we've all experienced uh, transformation 
in our personal lives, in how we access information, in how services are tailored to us. Uh, maybe in some ways, something we're not even comfortable with, right? I, I'm talking about you know, a particular piece of uh, you know a jacket or something, and next thing I know, all the ads in my feed are of jackets, you know. But but this hyper personalization, this um, you know, the ability to order something from Amazon and have it delivered in you know four hours, you know, uh, it, it really those expectations are entering our not only our customers' minds and their tenants, but also our technicians' minds and the minds of our employees. And they're, have, they're expecting the same level of personalization, of speed and, and agile uh, service in uh, their corporate environment and uh, in their buildings and things like that. So I, I think we're, we're trying to keep up with that. But it's um, it's a big challenge because the, what they don't see is the you know hundreds of developers and people behind empowering that experience at Amazon or DoorDash or some of these companies. And I, I, if I had you know I, I, I've heard all the time I wish I could see my technician driving up to my building and uh, then I would know when they're going to get there, just like my Uber or something like that. And maybe that's in the works. Who knows? But uh, but I think those expectations are there and I think it's important for us to uh, prioritize those, find the ones that address our customer pain points the most uh, and then to focus our efforts there because uh, you can get distracted by so many things and get very little done. So we're very much focused on prioritization and ruthlessly picking those things we want to invest in, both for our employees and for our customers and making sure that they're addressing those biggest pain points in, in those populations uh, and not just something interesting and new and, you know, that somebody came up with, but really delivering the most value for the investment. For our audience, if you just joined us, you're listening to John Barr, uh, leads the IT group at Kone and, and is really partners with the field service, customer service, customer experience parts of the organization and elevators, escalators, and obviously servicing and supporting and installing some of those. Um, one of the fascinating things about Service Council is this incredible uh, breadth and depth of research. And uh, I read that paperwork and administrative tasks are still the number one least favorite part of the field service engineers. Can you talk a little about, and the research, by the way, indicates that it's 20% of the day of these really valuable people is spent in what seems to be mundane administrative tasks that just sucks the life out of, I think, most of us. What is Kone deploying to alleviate this kind of anchor to productivity, anchor to really value creation by these deeply technical resources? Yeah, it's uh, it, it, when you see it, it's almost uh, just like a punch in the gut. You know, you know how important these individuals are for our customers. You know that the value they deliver is when they're on the site, working with customers, working with the equipment. Uh, and then you see the paperwork and, and you understand the importance of what they're doing the paperwork for, why it's needed. Um, but we've been on a journey to, you know, I, I've been ruthlessly trying to get rid of paper in the organization, collect things digitally in the quickest way possible bring them centrally and alleviate the 
friction in the process because you're exactly right. Our, our technicians, they never entered these careers so that they could do paperwork. You know, they entered these careers because they, they're mechanically inclined. They love uh, cu our customers. They love serving customers. They don't really appreciate driving or paperwork. You know, so for me, those two things are waste. Uh, not that they don't have value, but, you know, if we can find ways to do them better, uh, that would be, you know, so much better off. Uh, but I, I think the great thing is all of our technicians these days carry what once used to be a supercomputer in their pocket, sure. you know, and that supercomputer that's a phone now can do a, an amazing array of things. It can measure rooms, you know, it can, you know, through artificial intelligence, it can determine equipment. It can capture signatures. Uh, you know, there, there's so many rich things built into that that really reduce the friction in data capture. And it's incumbent on us to empower those devices to work for our technicians. And um, I think many times our technicians might feel like they're working for the device, but it's really there, you know, for them to support them and to make things uh, easier and quicker with less friction. I, uh, I was having a, a, a really rich conversation with another uh, field service executive and uh, John, in a purely practical fashion, they're also in the industrial space. They said a lot of our field technicians still work in, you know, grease and oil and places that, that you know, are not really conducive to technology. So for them to mm -hmm. take a device out and touch it or whatever, it's just not, not going to work. Are you, are you guys looking at wearables? Have you deployed wearables? What's your answer to, again, in a highly industrial environment, in the bowels of the organization, you know, the building, you're up in your elbows and things that are not really good for that phone or that watch. So what are you guys thinking about in terms of, uh, of wearables? Yeah, I, I think it's definitely our future. Uh, I think I think we have some challenges with the current um the wearables that are currently available, I think they're great for prototyping, proof of concepting, piloting, but but at scale, uh, they're they're very challenging from a battery life perspective or even a life safety perspective. Uh, we we have technicians who you know ride on top of the elevators, and if you you know if something if a cord gets you know tangled with something while the car's moving, that's not a good situation. We don't want to be in that situation. So. It's uh, it's an evolving area. We watch it very closely, but uh, we're still very much kind of in the, you know, I don't want to say wait and see, but more try and fail and, you know, understand how we're going to need to change our operations and our support material and our, you know, support infrastructure to support the technicians through wearable technology. And we're having great success, I would say, in removing uh, airline flights to be physically on site with a real dedicated technician, you know, real specialist. We might be able to send a wearable, have someone use that and be able to solve the problem quicker, restore service to the customer quicker, save the flight, save the wear and tear on the specialist um, using wearable technology. But it, it's still those very unique cases at the moment. But I, I'm a strong believer in it. It just needs to fit our uh, business requirements, and we have to adopt our uh, support strategies to be able to take advantage of them. Let, let's stay on this topic. Service Council this past year, uh, beyond the advisory board, created also a, a technology advisory board of some fantastic tech executives. And, uh, you know, John, a lot of these companies, for lack of a better word, are startups. 
And, and in my experience, a large, mature, global enterprise like Kone would be rightfully so nervous in putting a critical part of their business in the hands of a, of a startup. And just from a viability standpoint, are you going to be around long enough to not just sell us this, but maintain it? And yet some of the most fascinating innovations, real innovations come from these you know, scrappy tech startups that don't have the baggage of a large enterprise company. How are you testing? How are you bringing in some of these kind of smaller tech players that could transform a big piece of your business while still keeping an eye on the risk, the scale, the viability? Do they have enough engineers? Can they support a not just a five device rollout but a five thousand device rollout globally yeah it's always a challenge uh i think you have to weigh the risk reward so when you see the when you see the potential you see the opportunity and it's worth the risk you go do it you know but you have a risk mitigation plan what if what if how do i know you know if their financials are staying solid you know, so I, I would say that when we do engage with uh, startup companies, smaller companies, we're very intimate with them. You know, we're more than we would with a large company. So we we know many of their people by name. We visit them physically. We have you know reviews of their financials, even if they're not public, perhaps. You know, so we we really want to be you know in the in the strongest word partners. Mm. You know, and we want to have a plan for. You know, if things go wrong so that, you know, there's not, uh, you know, that we can take code with us if we need to. We can take data, you know, that there's a that we have the data and maybe even our own data center um, on a regular basis uh, so that in case something happens, we're we're protected. So take the risk, but mitigate the risk when you see the reward and the opportunity. And if I could add on, it's not new for us because in the digitalization space in our product, we're creating environments and ecosystems where we're inviting in startups to go to market with us for uh, some of our customers. And in those cases, um, you know, the, the visibility of the startup is very visible to our customers even. You know, so not only in our operations, but in this case, customer facing visitor management systems are using our APIs. And, you know, so we're we're very much having to interact with a lot of innovators and people who are taking risks and be willing to take those risks with them and to understand uh, when it makes sense to make those bets and how we mitigate those risks around those bets. Is there a Kone investment arm or do you know of any investments Kone's made into a tech that's very relevant to your world? You know, I don't I don't want to I mean, if I I'm not involved in those discussions, but I think generally we're looking to build the ecosystem and to maybe not monetarily support, but be even more importantly, uh, be an ally, uh, be a, you know, um, provide feedback, uh, provide, you know, maybe we're uh, doing you know, sort of uh, development exercises with them, exposing additional information to them. So we're we're getting heavily involved with them, but I, I don't think our partnership is meant to be financial, more yeah. meant to be operational, tactical and, and allyship than and, and, uh, ownership. And 
so much of what the early stage companies need to kind of yeah. validate their product market fit and get it to a viable stage than having, you know, a recognizable brand and, and a relationship like Kone. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you a tough question. We had um, Eric Anderson, uh, president of the, the whole logic, uh, you know, service business, you know, in, in a previous episode. And we were talking about service, earning a seat at that executive, that leadership kind of table. It's a it's a highly valuable real estate. What what do you think has to happen? Uh, well, first, let me ask you, is service considered really a strategic asset at Kone? Because again, you're, you're in the building elevators and building cabins and escalators and you wanna sell that product. So is service an afterthought or is it really strategic? And if so, does service have a seat at that senior leadership board level table in your in your opinion? Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's an easy question to answer. I mean, service is strategic. It's our lifeblood. It's why we build elevators and escalators so that we can serve the customer who's going to run that building. You know, so we don't we don't really build and forget. Uh, we build and service. You know, and then not only do we service, we we modernize it to keep servicing it for um, you know, the lifetime of the building. And, you know, it, it's, it, it, it does run deep through our culture, you know, being a world-class service organization. Uh, today, I'm actually not in my home office, not in my regular office, but uh, down in our uh, technology R&D and manufacturing facility uh, in Allen, Texas. And here we have people who, you know, they're looking at how we build and package uh, or how we design and package the elevators and they're looking at how that's going to impact not only the installers, but how are we going to service it? How are we going to service it safely? How are we going to service it efficiently? How are we going to make sure the service that's needed is, um, you know, as optimized as possible? Mm. And how do we make sure and put things into the elevator? They're going to give us signals so that we'll know when it needs serviced, you know, before it even has a failure. You know, so all the way back into the R&D process, we're thinking about service, you know, so and, and I think you really have to do that to do it well. So it's really designed for serviceability. It sounds like it's top of mind for the leadership for let's not just come out with a cool elevator. We got to be able to get to it and accessibility and how do we mm -hmm. and, and I always tell clients the relationship really starts after the sale. So mm -hmm. how responsive are you? How? much of a foresight did you put into designing that so when it does need to be taken apart we can get back into operating as quickly as possible so thank you thank you for that um and you can you can imagine you can imagine the discussions that happen when you need to add in additional cost you know into the installation uh for the lifetime service you know they're our, our customers you know they they're you know their budgets are challenged they're very price focused and when you add cost uh it has you know you know you have to be able to sell that serviceability value uh, and things like that so it, it's uh it's not it's easy to talk about but it's really hard to to implement into your organization to be able to make those investments to see the long game and to be able to you know design and build in for service and uh, accept those costs into your install product, uh, but knowing that the life cycle is going to return tenfold on that investment. One of the uh, big challenges through this global pandemic going on, I think we're approaching the, the third year of this thing being around, is that uh, 
a lot of seasoned uh, professionals, a lot of those field service engineers figured out that they'd much rather spend time with their kids than their grandkids. And you know what? I'm, I'm at a certain age and maturity in my, my career that I'm just not excited about the hours and all the, you know, the technology and all the things we have to do. So that I'm sure you've heard of the, the silver tsunami where a, a big swatch of the, the, the field service technicians in particular that we've counted on for so many years with deep subject matter expertise are retiring. And we're not, you know, we don't have an apprentice program or we don't have as, as strong of a funnel of bringing the next generation in. How's Kone dealing with, because again, if I'm, if I'm a young kid out of school, you know, that potential Google job or that potential startup job is, is a lot more exciting than maybe going and becoming a service, you know, elevator service engineer. And how are you guys addressing the silver tsunami? What are you doing to bring fresh talent into the organization to ensure that it is sell and service? Yeah. So we work with uh, our union very closely on... Uh, bringing new talent into the um, into the industry, and uh, we're laser focused on making sure that we can bring in uh, high quality, diverse talent into the union, into the industry, so that they can take over those incredibly important roles uh, for those individuals who are at that point in their life where they're you know they either leaving the industry or have are able to focus on their personal priorities and not work. And uh, but for me, it, we really need to make sure that people understand what a great uh, place to work uh, this industry can be, and specifically Kone in this industry could be to work for. So we're laser focused on being an employee uh, employer of choice. You know that we're seen as the best place to work, um, uh, an, an inclusive place to work, and then we're getting that talent to come into the industry so that we can really accomplish all the orders and uh, work that we have with our customers. It's really a big challenge bringing in that new talent. But then you're exactly right. Once we have the new talent, how do we get them decades of experience from uh, individuals who spent their lives, you know, uh, understanding uh, technologies and certain types of equipment and the nuances and uh, things like that. And I, I think there's a number of technology vendors uh, who uh, have solutions. But, uh, you know, if I'm honest, we haven't found the silver bullet yet. And it probably isn't just one bullet. It's probably a number of them. Uh, But we're actively working on this as a key challenge and and hopefully a key differentiator for us, that if we can find ways to leverage their skills for longer uh, or to find ways that's easy for them to package their knowledge in a way that's easily discoverable, consumable by the next generation. Uh, those could be very powerful uh, differentiators uh, for our employees, but also we think it'll dramatically affect our key KPIs, you know, our first fixed rates, you know, customer satisfaction, retention, you know, uh, those kind of things as well. Love that. Um, stay. Let's stay on the talent topic for a second. Um, uh, for our audience, if you don't know about this, uh, coming up in September is the Service Council's uh, Symposium. It's in Chicago. It's a fantastic gathering. If you're in field service, customer service, customer experience, it is the event that you need to attend. John, full disclosure, last year was my first one, and I was just incredibly impressed by 
the quality of the attendees and the richness of the conversation. But in, again, I also saw a whole bunch of white, you know, predominantly men, right? So mm-hmm. can you talk about Kone's efforts in diversity and really attracting the less represented kind of communities to represent more what the clients, the customers look like and, and really building an environment where we can bolster the success of those that may not represent the industry today? Yeah, I, I think uh, optically your observation is uh, obviously accurate. And um, for me, it starts with inclusion. So we have to make sure that everyone is able to bring their best self to work, that, they, um, that they're all equally able to contribute. Uh, and I can do that. I, I, I do that today, yesterday, tomorrow. So you don't have to have uh, a goal around inclusion. You have to have actions around inclusion because the challenge is if you find a way uh, to attract diverse talent, but you're not inclusive, you won't retain them. They won't feel welcome. They won't, you know, if everyone thinks the same and one person thinks differently, they're going to think I don't belong here, <laughs> you know, and uh, especially if I'm not called on to provide my, my input and it's not welcomed or accepted. So for me, uh, I'm daily thinking about including, and I like to remind myself that I, if I'm not actively including people, I'm probably passively excluding uh, people. And, and for me, it's, uh, it, there is that moral kind of DEI imperative, but for me, I think it's how we're going to be the best, mm. how we're going to perform the best. You know, we're, we're not a sum of our individual pieces. We're, we're even more than that. But if you don't get everybody's contribution or if you don't have everybody's you know, heart, mind, and soul in it, then you're, you're missing out on opportunities. So inclusion for me is incredibly important. But then we also have to make sure that when, we're, when we have the opportunity and the responsibility to bring new talent into our teams, that we have the most diverse slate of talent so that we can find the best person. And if the slate is diverse, we're going to end up with diverse talent. That's the best. And then we select them, you know, and, uh, but if the, but if the slate of candidates isn't diverse, if it, if they all think the same way and look like you, you know, then, then that's, then that's going to be a challenge. So mm-hmm. we're very much interested in making sure that, when we have that that responsibility to add a new team member, that we also have the responsibility to make sure we have the most diverse slate possible, and then we have a diverse um, amount of reviewers, you know, who are participating in that interview process as well. Are um, you are you seeing more women and, and African Americans come into Kona as an organization? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I'd like I'd love to see more. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think we're still working hard to make sure that we have a candidate pool that, you know, that represents the, the, the locations where we work and the demographics there. And, and uh, we'll know that we're kind of, I don't want to say done, but that we're getting there when uh, everyone's comfortable, you know, bringing their best game to the table, uh, regardless of, you know, uh, what they look like or who they are. Uh, and that our, talent uh, looks like our customers' talent and looks like the, the people who live around the buildings we build and uh, things like that. So it's, um, it's something we're working hard on. 
Yeah, and I, and I agree with you. I, I I think it's an ongoing initiative by all of us. And I got to tell you, I, I recently saw a, a quote that said, I'd rather be excluded for being inclusive than included for being exclusive. And I thought that that really resonated with me. And, and I think the mindset that leaders can bring to this ongoing challenge and an opportunity. So my, my last couple of questions of you in thinking about the second half of the year, Give us a glimpse from a technology and field service, customer service at Kone. What are you most excited about? And then what are you conversely most concerned about? Well, I, I think one of the things I'm most excited about, which maybe has some aspects of technology, maybe maybe not. There's technology woven through it. But, um, you know, we, we do regular pulse surveys of our employees and our field employees. And we're incredibly blessed to have a very high participation rate and a very high engagement rate. And they leave us many comments, you know, in there and, and in those comments is gold, you know, and, and uh, you know, even more important metals. And uh, what we've heard from them a lot is, you know, you make it very difficult to find the support I need as a technician. I don't know if I have to go to HR, if I have to go to IT, if I have to go to the phone, vendor or to the technical help desk or, you know, why is it so hard to and, and um, to our credit, I think we heard that and, you know, we, we were doing what we thought was great. You know, each of our individual groups was providing a service to the technicians and but we did it in different ways with different numbers and 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 we ended up ping ponging people around. And uh, what we've done is just kind of flip that inside out and said, we're going to be we're going to have a one-stop shop for our technicians. They pick up the phone. Uh, we'll schedule their oil change, their tire rotation. We'll get them a new phone. We'll work on their W-2 withholding amount. Um, now, obviously, that one person on the phone isn't doing all those things, but we're hiding all the complexity of the organization from the technician uh, and, and having one point of accountability for servicing them and taking care of them. Almost like a concierge desk within the organization. Now, do you have to be Kone employee or can I call that number? I'm just saying it sounded fantastic. <laughs> well, we haven't launched it as an external service yet, but I I hope you haven't, uh, you know, trademarked that idea. So. I love it. I love it. And finally, again, I know you're active in the, the service council. I, I would remiss if I didn't ask, uh, why are you involved with service council? What do you get out of it? Uh, what do you most look forward to in your continued involvement with the service council? Yeah, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I get from the service council 10 times more than what I put into it. You know, that's how I feel. And it's it whenever you're taking the time to get engaged in an organization, you're making a, a very precious investment of your personal time and you want to make sure that it's going to be worth it. And uh, for me, it has been, I've been, I came to the first service council symposium, I think back when it was in Boston. And when I looked around the room and I saw the, the, the talent and the experience and the, you know, the network was, that was there, I was, I was really kind of blown away. And I was an IT person. I wasn't in service, but I, I, I'm I kind of, I, if you cut me open, I bleed uh, service in my veins. And, uh, you know, I've had the, the wonderful opportunity to contribute, but every time I go to service council symposium or if I uh, watch podcasts or uh, attend any of the events, I'm learning so much. I'm taking notes. I'm, 
I'm learning from parallel industries that have similar challenges. Um, I'm also have the opportunity to share maybe with some industries that haven't quite reached a level of maturity or solved a problem. You know, they can see what we're doing and take that. And I, it feels good to be able to help them as well. But there's so much inspiration, so much uh, opportunity to hear from people who aren't your competitors, but who are struggling with the exact same problems you are. You know, they have they have highly skilled, highly paid people moving from customer site to customer site all around the world or around the U.S. And they they have all the same challenge, many of the same challenges. And uh, it's just great to have that network of people. Love to it. I've, I've always said people fundamentally gather for two reasons, content and community. And it seems mm -hmm. like Service Council has done a great job in building both. For our audience, if you missed it, you missed a good one. Uh, John Barr uh, leads the IT organization uh, for Kone. And we really appreciate, uh, John, your perspective from the technology, from a CIO's kind of lens into the field service, into the customer service experience. So on behalf of Service Council, thanks for joining us. It was great to have you. Thanks. Great to be here, David. For our audience, our next uh, uh, live uh, session is August 4th. We're going to have uh, Neil Baru, I believe is the pronunciation, who is the CEO of ServiceMax. Great uh, organization, uh, some really incredible insights. And we're going to talk a lot about asset-centric digital transformation. So I hope you'll join us for that one. We're going to, again, be live with, uh, with guests. And uh, on behalf of Service Council, thanks for joining. I uh, hope you'll listen to this uh, in podcasts, wherever you consume podcasts, or keep coming back to the live episodes Thursdays, typically at noon Eastern. Thanks, everybody. And we look forward to seeing you next time.